Our first scripture this morning will be from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, and it's found on page 1,757 in your pew Bible. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but Sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the results of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one reign in the life through the one man Jesus Christ consequently just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people for just as through the disobedience of the one man and the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our second reading today will be from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And this is found on page 1,612 in your pew Bible. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This ends the reading of our Lord. Join our hearts together in prayer this morning. Lord, meet us in this place today. Set our hearts on fire with your love. May it consume, may it purify. So, Lord, that all that we say and all that we do would be to your honor and glory and to our great good. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're making our way through our uh, Methodism sermon series, The Wesleyan Way. I want to remind you that you have a little insert in your bulletin for week three for our topic today, which is grace. And I want to invite you to leave any questions or comments uh, in the box at the back of the sanctuary right next to the video booth. You can put them in there and then... We'll be taking some time at the end of this to go through. I got a few really thoughtful questions last week, and so we look forward to spending some time going through those um, at the end of uh, when the sermon series concludes. We'll, I'll be uh, addressing those in a, in a video and audio format. So I invite you to take make use of those inserts in your bulletin. Well, last week we talked about sin. That wonderfully cheery topic, that we all love to just come to church and hear a great sermon about sin. But how, how do we make sense of grace and God's holiness and sanctification if we don't have first an understanding of what's deeply wrong with humanity? And sin is not just the bad things that we do, it's fundamentally an orientation toward all of life. And friends, that includes even the good things that we do for the wrong reasons. It's a skewed perspective of the world. It's broken relationships with God and with one another. That there's a fundamental condition of humanity that transcends just outward actions. Remember as we we talked about what Jesus said in the Gospels that, you know, what happens on the outside is just a manifestation of what's going on in the heart. And so to talk about sin, to have a robust, full understanding of sin, we have to move beyond just the exterior to a fundamental condition of human beings that all of us share and carry with us. And were it not for what we're going to talk about this morning, grace, all of us would be hopelessly lost. But there is grace. You know that when I ask questions in my sermons, I'm not rhetorical. I'm a conversational preacher, so I want to ask you if you might have a definition for grace. Nelson's hand just shot right up. All right. Did you hear that? Nelson has, we have an acronym. I think, is that an acrostic? Acrostic. I get those mixed up. God's riches at Christ's expense spells out the word grace. Anybody else want to take a, take a stab at how you might define grace? 
It's a word we use a lot, don't we? You know, I think it's important every now and then in church that we do this. Because so often we'll use words as, as if we're kind of operating on a, a common understanding and that, that we all define these or that we know how we're defining them. Things like grace and faith and holiness. So it's important to sit for a moment and to talk about these terms. Grace, Margie. Forgiveness. Absolutely, that's certainly a component to grace. Compassion, yeah, that all flows from grace, Jen. Ah, okay, blessing when we do not deserve it. Peter. God's understanding, okay. God's love. All right, so you all are pointing beyond human beings to something else. So I think we're starting to get at grace. Jackie, take one more. Unmerited forgiveness. All right. That's a, a unmerited favor, unmerited forgiveness. It's a common definition of grace, yes. Here's where we're going to move into, we're going to take all of that, everything that all of you said gets at grace. Some of it about grace itself, some of it an outworking of grace in the life of an individual. Unmerited favor is a common definition of grace. And that is good as, so far as it goes. Um, here is something that I believe the Wesleyan movement contributes to a full understanding of grace. And that grace is not just something that we passively receive, as in God's unmerited favor. Do we need that? Absolutely. Does it start with that? Absolutely. But we don't just become passive recipients of grace and then we're good. We're set. No. Grace is also God's active power given to us so that we can live a transformed life. So yes, there is a component of the grace of God that is unmerited favor, unmerited blessing. God's riches given to us. Yes then that leads to something. An active transformation as God's Spirit works in the life of an individual and among a group of people and in relationships, changing and transforming and moving us toward more holy lives, which is seen in compassion, love for others, and forgiveness. I came across this definition of grace, which I really love. This is by the great uh, pastor A.W. Tozer. That's what he said. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us sinful people is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to all the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ. Do you hear in that Tozer who was in a Wesleyan tradition? He's very much informed by John Wesley, that yes, it starts with God's uh, benefits that he bestows on people who don't deserve it. That's that unmerited favor piece. But then it's to make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ. So then we have a part to play. John Wesley called that cooperative grace. That God wants to work in us and through us. He wants to, as it were, partner with us in bringing that light into the world. John Wesley himself talked about grace as having 
It's commonly thought of as three. There's really four, but one kind of acts as a bridge. Distinct movements of grace. So these are not as if God has four different types of graces, but that in the life of an individual and in humanity, that God's grace has a particular movement uh, in the life of a believer. And it starts with something that John Wesley called preventing grace. Now that's a word that we hear and we would prevent as stopping someone from doing something, right? If you're going to prevent someone something, you're inhibiting a certain action or behavior. It's not what it meant in Wesley's day. Preventing meant something that goes before, something that leads the way. So John Wesley understood that in the life of an individual, from the babies among us to the oldest ones who don't yet know Jesus, that God's grace works already in their lives to sort of call them to himself. That God is already working. And God there awakens in that individual a sense of something happening, something going on. Long before they know God, long before they understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them. That God has not just abandoned humanity in our sinfulness, which he would have every right to do as a holy and loving God. But that is not in his character, we understand. That even while Paul says we're dead in trespasses and our sins, God's grace is still active and working. There is nowhere that God is not. If there were a place that God is not, God would not be God. The psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from it? I go to the edge of the sea, even you are there. So, God is working. That is the the preventing grace, the prevenient grace, the grace that goes before. And then when one starts to be awakened to their need for God and to the condition of their own heart, they're given convicting grace. And again, this is all what God does. Convicting grace. An acknowledgement and an understanding that we have hurt other people, that we have sinned, that something is not right. This common grace given to all people. I think we can even see that in our world today, can't we? I mean, one need not be a Christian to be convicted that murder is a bad thing. There's something in us that knows that that's wrong. We know that, um, that ignoring the needs of others around us, even if you're not a Christian, even if you have no concept of God, you've never heard of Jesus... There seems to be something in human beings where there are basic things like basic principles of morality, knowing that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. Well, we would say that's already the grace of God that covers the world, that is allowing for individuals to have their hearts changed so that they might be led toward convicting grace, where it becomes not just a sense of there is right and wrong, but I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And then when one accepts and acknowledges that and receives Christ, they receive justifying grace. Where God justifies them, sets them back into right relationship with himself because of what Christ has done on our behalf. That's justifying grace. And then there's sanctifying grace. And that is, as justification might be opening the door and allowing Christ into the home of our lives, sanctification is Christ going through every room and totally renovating it. 
It's that God's Spirit that works in us that conforms our lives so that we live lives of compassion and love and care for the least of these. That our lives no longer are marked by enmity with one another and disconnection from God, but we start to take on a new persuasion, a new perspective, as God changes us and those fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in the book of Galatians become markers of our very own lives. That is sanctifying grace. All unmerited favor, all the power of God given to us on our behalf, we're justified, it's a free gift of grace, And then the Holy Spirit works in us so that through the grace of God, we can do what could not be done before. We can live lives of righteousness and holiness. So the story of the Good Samaritan, what does this have to do with grace? It's a well-known parable, isn't it? In fact, it's so well-known, they named hospitals after it. And it becomes a story of Right, doing good for other people and helping those who are down and out and noticing the, the needs of people around us, maybe particularly people we don't really like. All of that is true. But it is so much more than that. And if we just land the plane on that understanding of the story of the Good Samaritan, we've really lost the overall meaning. I want you to listen very closely to the context of that parable. And we'll spend just a couple moments talking about this. Listen to this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. What do you find there? Well, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do you see all that's going on? There are just a few question and answers. Jesus and his interlocutor, this expert on religious law, who comes to him to test Jesus. You see our narrator in the Gospels, you find this particularly strong in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke, gives us real insight into the motivations of characters that we find in these stories. This man does not have a pure intention coming to Jesus asking this question. He's trying to test Jesus. We find a lot of the religious leaders do this again and again. They're trying to trip him and to trap him so that they have something to accuse him, something to hold against him. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen to what the emphasis is on. What must I do to inherit eternal life. So then Jesus responds, as he so often does, to a question with another question. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you're the expert, expert in law. What's in there? Tell me what you find. 
And he quotes to him a section from Deuteronomy 6 that every good Jew would pray every day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. He said, who's my neighbor? What is going on under this text? In other words, what's the religious leader saying? That's too much. I can't do it. Surely, Jesus, you don't mean to love everybody and to love God with everything about me. Really? Who's my neighbor? You see, what Jesus is trying to lead him to, and what the point really of all the law is, is that we can't do it on our own. We can't justify ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life. If that were the case, if we could do and then inherit eternal life, well, that would be so contradictory to the whole message of Scripture. Because the whole message of Scripture, from Genesis all the way to the Revelation, is that there's nothing that we can do. Because as soon as human beings try to do, apart from the grace of God, they royally mess it up. There's nothing we can do. We have to rely fully on grace. And then grace gives us the power and allows us to do what cannot be done in our own strength and in our own effort. It's all God working through us. But in an attempt to justify himself, and don't you see that inclination in you and in me? Sometimes, friends, even for us as believers, when we have God's spirit in us through sanctifying grace who's changing us and making us more like Jesus every day, there still can be that urge that we want to justify ourselves. We want to do it on our own. We have that impulse baked into us, don't we? From a very early age. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're your own individual. You can do it. That's totally counter to the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace says, no, you can't do it on your own. You can't. Someone else must do it for you. And so a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And two good, upstanding religious people come along. And what do they do? They avoid him. They're too busy going where they're going. Helping out with this guy, they might get blood on their robes. It's going to take too much time and effort. So they go around and they purposefully avoid. And the Samaritan the one that the Jews hated. They were considered unclean. They were considered half-breeds. You would go out of your way to avoid the region of Samaria. And it is a Samaritan who stops. And what does he do? He bandages up his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He tends to him. He takes him to an inn where he gives him money to stay and then says, keep a tab on him and I'll pay the rest when I come back. Why does he do all that? Because the scriptures say he was 
by compassion. Friends, you know who the Jew on the side of the road is in the story? It's you and me. And there's someone who's traveling, who comes along, and because he's so moved by compassion, he picks us up, he bandages us, he pays our debts, he loves us, he sets us on our feet again. Totally shocking to Jesus' original audience that a Samaritan could be the hero of the story. But we also see in this parable that Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. He's the one who has shown mercy to each one of us. He's the one who loved us when we were unlovable. And he's the one who, when he justifies us and saves us, and when his spirit starts to work in us to sanctify us and to save us, that we're to cooperate with him. We're to then go out and to have our eyes opened to the need of the people who are lying alongside the roads of life, who are hurt, who are destitute, who have no one to care for them, who've been abandoned by everyone, maybe even good religious people. And because of that free grace that's been given to us, we're to then live out lives of grace, loving the unlovable, having our eyes opened so that we can serve others freely and without condition. Jesus says in Matthew 25, at the end of days when the people are called before him, and he'll separate the sheep and the goats. And what does he say to them? I was in prison you didn't feed, visit me. I was hungry, you didn't give me food. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me water. I was naked, you didn't give me clothes. And the goats will say, when, Lord, when did we ever see you like that? And he'll say, when you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Good social work does not save us. Helping those around us is not what justifies us and gives us eternal life but it is evidence of a life of faith. It is in the spiritual order, the natural outworking of a life that has been suffused by the grace of God. There's trees all around us outside. How do you know they're alive? Because the leaves are green. Because they grow. The same in the life of a Christian. How do you know there's living faith? How do you know that the grace of God has touched the life of an individual? Because you see it in the way they love God and they love their neighbor. But it's all a gift of what God works in us to do through us. Nothing that we can do on our own. There was a man in the middle of the 18th century who was caught up in the Methodist movement. Saved radically one night on a ship that was being pounded by a storm. Cried out to God, gave his life to God and was thoroughly changed. Lived a different life from that point forward. He became involved with the Methodist movement. And understood that God's grace had done for him what he could not do for himself. 
And he was so overcome by what God's grace had did for him, he wrote these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 